Hello and welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. This is episode 4 of 4 of the Hummy Man Interviews. In this final episode, Hummy will discuss working with Jerry Goldsmith, one of his great heroes. He'll discuss going back to education and he'll also talk about his lauded PNW, the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Programme, which is now recognised as one of the finest film scoring programmes in the world. How it started, how it's developed and where it is now going. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, please subscribe. But do consider coming over to www.guitarmusicinstitute.com seeing the individual podcast episodes for further materials, videos and information. So, up and coming is the final episode of the Hummy Man interview. I hope you enjoy it. We're at a point in history, music history, uh, music and film, where there's almost an expectation from the audience's point of view of what they expect to hear with regards certain scenes and emotions on screen. Well, that's a really interesting question. The thing that I always say is that film composers are not really recreating the wheel. They're just putting a different hubcap on it. And I think that the number of designs of hubcaps is pretty much endless. What what we've seen in, in, in the last, well, I don't know if this is true about the last couple of years, but certainly because of electronics, we've seen new colors be added to the orchestra. You know, if you go back into the 50s, and basically we were all using acoustic instruments. And then electric guitar got added, and then we started bringing in the jazz influence because of Henry Mancini. And then, you know, 20th century techniques were certainly something that that maybe you could credit Bernard Herrmann for. And we got into electronics, and very possibly Hans Zimmer was one of the main guys that did that. Now there's there are people that write with a lot more sound design elements, more whooshes and whoosh, filtering of sounds of white noise. And so the, the palette has grown. And so I think that because of that, we're always finding new things. I also believe there are people that, that say that all the melodies have already been written. I don't believe that that's true. I, I like to, um, I work hard and I take great pride in the fact that people think I write great melodies. I don't think that I'm ripping off anybody when I'm writing my melodies. I try not to, certainly. Uh, I know that when I, whenever I write a theme, I always call up a couple of people that I know who I trust. And I say, okay, let me play this theme, see if I bumped into any. On occasion, somebody has said, oh, yeah, that sounds a little bit like blah, 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 blah. And I'll go, okay, let me let me go listen to that and see if I agree or if I should change it. So I, I think that there's still a lot of ways of expressing various emotions, but they're not going to be brand new, but they're going to be interesting variations. And that's why I say this hubcap thing. I think that we're not going to be re- recreating the wheel. It's just not going to happen it has a certain, you know, it has a certain functionality. Film music. I think that one of the things that we have gotten away from temporary scoring is what I call emotional depth level. You could get away with like a lot more saccharine type of scoring in period films and in older films. You can see this. Whereas in contemporary films, a lot of times the score tells you you should be feeling something, but doesn't tell you what you should be feeling. Thomas Newman's probably you know one of the great composers at doing that, where you don't get a sense of what the you get somewhat of a sense of the emotion, but it's it's more like when his score starts, it's giving you a license to feel something, but it's not telling you what to feel. Absolutely fascinating stuff. You are listening to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and I'm in conversation with the composer Hummy Man. Now, Hummy, 
you won a couple of Emmys, haven't you? You've been put up for a whole lot of stuff and actually won two. Can you tell us about that? Sure. My first Emmy Award was for being on the team that did the music for the Academy Awards one year. And I actually arranged um, Billy Crystal's opening number for the Academy Awards. And um, so it was the whole team. Bill Conti was the conductor and, and, and music director. And there was a team of about four or five arranger uh, orchestrators um, that worked on the show. Uh, Mark Shaman, I think, also won for best writing that year of a special song because he wrote the he 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 kind of came up with the parody for that I did the arrangement of. So I was at that time working with Mark Shaman, and that's why I did the orchestration uh, arrangement. And then the other thing that I wanted an Emmy for was for outstanding composition for a dramatic series, where I did an episode of a series on Showtime of Showtime's Picture Windows. And this was a, an episode called Language of the Heart, where I got to write a, a kind of a pseudo violin concerto. Now, I just want to talk about that, uh, because when I was 14 years old, I watched this uh, movie and I, I couldn't remember the name of it, but I was 14, 13 or 14. And I was watching this, uh, this film. I think it was during the I was off school. It would be the winter holidays. And I was totally taken in by this uh, melody, this boy who was playing the violin. To he, he, There was this girl that uh, he fancied, and he would go to her, basically he would go to where she stayed and look up to the window and he played, and I thought it was the most wonderful melody. And years later, I mean 30 years later, I found out you were the writer of it. Making me feel very old here, Jed. <laughs> well, and me too. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. I, I remember getting the script, and the script was very thin for a short film. It was a, it was, it was an anthology series called Picture Windows, where every episode was about a piece of art and how that piece of art came to be. And this is Day Guys the rehearsal. And um, I remember reading the script, and the only thing that they said in the script was he plays a haunting melody. And really, the success of that story was if I could pull that off. And it was what was interesting is that it went very well, obviously, and, and and I've gotten a lot of kudos for writing that piece of music, and a lot gotten fan mail, and I'm glad that I touched so many nerves. I'll never forget when we were mixing the film and we were finally done with it, and at the end of the film, Jonathan Kaplan put up a dedication to his father, Saul Kaplan. He dedicated the film to his father, Saul Kaplan, and I was like sitting there and I was in tears. And because his father, Saul Kaplan, was a film composer. Wow. Jonathan turned to me and he said he would have been proud. And I was like, loss of words. A wonderful story. Wonderful to get an insight into that, honey. Now, I could go on and on and all the different things that you've done. You know, Cyberworld 3D, Thomas the Magic, Railroad, After Rain, all the conducting and the production and all the rest of it. But to be honest, we just don't have enough time. I'll <laughs> obviously be putting a lot of... Uh, this material on the Guitar Music Institute website, and it will also include uh, a link to your uh, website so people can check out just the huge amount of what you've done. But I would like to now move on to something that's totally connected, but in a way completely different, because you started up one of the premier schools in teaching people how to score for film and television. And why did you do that? 
Uh, I think that there's a couple reasons. I've always been uh, enjoyed passing on knowledge. Uh, I mean, I started very young. We talked about how I started playing when I was extremely young. When I was 13, I was giving guitar lessons. As a 13-year-old boy, I had like 10 or 15 students, and I was getting paid five bucks an hour. When I lived in Los Angeles, I taught at the uh, at UCLA Extension's film scoring program. I was teaching writing how to, how to write for the rhythm section and contemporary harmony practices. 20 some odd years ago, my wife and I moved our family up to Seattle for lifestyle choices. One of the things that I discovered when I first got here is that I was spending a lot of time alone in my room writing music or down in L.A. having having any interaction with human beings. Yeah, people probably don't know that, do they, homie? It's a very lonely job, isn't it? Yeah, you spend a lot of time alone, and, and, and I'm kind of okay with that, but it, it just seemed weird that I, that I had no contact with anybody any human beings while I was in Seattle. My daughters, who were obviously going to school, one of them had a friend whose parent suggested, well, why don't I start teaching a class in film scoring? Because she, this woman was actually interested in this. So I contacted uh, Bellevue Community College and was approved to teach an extension course in film composition. Over the years, what happened is that Bellevue Community College needed room space and they moved me off campus and Snowball just kept on going, and it became its standalone program, which I named the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program. Um, that ran for 15 or 16 years as a series of evening courses. I started out with just me being the teacher and then added a course in finale and added a course in digital performer and added a course in film history. And uh, And what ended up happening is that the one of the big features of the program was that if you took all the classes at the end, we would score student-made films with student orchestras. So we would get these films that students were making, and we would score them with a 50-piece orchestra, which was unheard of. And the orchestra was basically made up of high-level student players, some community musicians, people who you know had been musicians their whole life, played in community orchestras, but were looking for a different kind of experience, college students as well. And we got a lot of support. Um, especially from, you know, the uh, principal violin instructor at the University of Washington. He brought a lot of his string players and he would be the concert master. And we scored over 100 student-made films with a 50-piece orchestra that way. So everybody that took the program would get to write a couple of minutes of music for a student-made film. What an experience. Yeah, it was amazing. I'd kind of gotten as far as I thought I could get with education, which I really enjoyed. I mean, my two loves are really writing music and teaching people how to do it. I kind of also felt that getting a little bit on a little soapbox here, that the advent of electronics and and sequencers were kind of taking away from the craft of composition. If you were taking a, a course in creative writing and all they did was teach you how to use a word processing program, you probably feel that you got gypped. But that became kind of pretty much the norm. You know, I'm going to teach film scoring. Well, we're going to teach you how to run digital performer or logic. Well, that's not teaching film composition. That's teaching you to use the tool that one could use. And they kind of became synonymous. And I really felt that there was a lot more that that needed to be taught and needed to be passed on. So I was teaching. And then about nine years ago, I decided that I had kind of taken my program as far as it could go. I mean, I was teaching a number of courses there. It, it, it ended up being four core courses, film scoring one, two, three, and four, where in film scoring one, 
we taught the basics in film scoring two, there was orchestration. Film scoring three was a class where you actually did a lot of writing. And film scoring four was where you actually scored a student film. And that would take people over a two-year process. I kind of felt that I had gone as far as I could with the orchestration, sorry, with, with teaching in my own program. And so I joined the faculty of Columbia College, Chicago. And I went and I lived in Chicago for one year, commuting every other weekend to visit my wife in my house. And well, that pretty, sounds that sounds a pretty heavy schedule. It was it was pretty nuts. And what I discovered, as great as Columbia College is, I was too far away from Los Angeles to really continue having any sort of professional career. And there were things that I felt were necessary to be involved in training that if you're running your own program, you can just say, okay, I'm going to start teaching this. Whereas in a big institution, you know, you have to get go through committee and have to do and and I kind of felt like things were moving too slowly in a big institution because it would just take so long to make any changes happen. So I came back to Seattle. I had left the course in the hands of my assistant, Tim Hewling. Tim had been teaching the classes and I was just getting involved in the actual recording sessions and and reviewing the work for the recording sessions. Moved back to, to Los Angeles, sorry, moved back to Seattle. And what happened was that the state who Tim and I had met with a number of times to see what we could do to get to the next level, knew about the program. And we then joined forces with the Seattle Film Institute, which had just become uh, certified to give out master's degrees. And so we joined them and became the music department. And in becoming the music department, about two months into the first year, when we opened our doors, we were just going to be giving out a certificate in film composition we started in September. By November, the state had already granted us the license to give out a master's degree. And so we were the first one-year master's degree program in film composition in the United States. Since that time, I went on and did a doctorate degree. I now have a doctor of musical arts, where my entire thesis is all about techniques, codification of techniques of writing dramatic music. Well, wow, that sounds heavy. Can you briefly, and if possible, simply tell us what that's about? Basically, you know, all music theory is just, in my opinion, has always been somebody looking at what other people have done and codifying what it was they were doing. Nobody wrote a harmony book that Bach studied. Bach wrote the, wrote the music, and then somebody went and said, oh, look at what he's doing, and came up with, you know, variety. And it wasn't just Bach, but I'll use him as an example. Came up with the rules that, that are taught today, no parallel fifths, certain kinds of chords you double the third, certain kinds of chords you, you know. There was a kind of a whole list of guidelines, many of which I think they teach wrong, but that's my own opinion. And so basically what I was doing is I was looking at not only music that I had written, but also other people had written, looking at what the practices were, such as the dramatic variations that John Williams did on the Indiana Jones theme at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's a technique that I talked about. And I talk about what the tools are of using that technique, tempo, register, uh, harmonization, texture, a variety of things. And so I codified all of this, started codifying this in my doctoral thesis. I remember when I started the process, I was actually teaching the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program, which is what I called it when we went independent, decided to launch a website, thanks to Tim. Tim recommended that. And we started getting requests from people. Who's, from all who's Tim? Tim was my assistant, Tim Hewling. He was my right-hand man, both working for me as a composing assistant, keeping my equipment running, doing orchestrations and copying and all kinds of various jobs for me. And he also was my right-hand man 
in doing the film scoring program when it was in its infancy. And he was teaching Finale and Digital Performer, um, I believe. And what ended up happening was that he was much more internet computer savvy than I am. He said, we should put up a website. And we launched a website about the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program with the primary goal being promoting the program that existed. And what ended up happening is that we started getting requests from people wanting to come and study with me who were not in Seattle. And so we launched the two-week two summer intensive program. That ran successfully for 17 years. And the only reason it stopped was because last summer I couldn't do it, but it's, it's happening again this summer. While I was in Scotland, and, and so we ran the first one, you attended, you went back to Scotland, and next thing I know is I'm invited to teach the course in Scotland, which the following summer I did two weeks in, in Seattle and then two weeks in Scotland. Somebody who came to the first Scottish one was from Denmark, but Copenhagen. He went back to Copenhagen. The next thing I know, I'm now invited to Copenhagen to teach the program. It's amazing, isn't it? It just it spread and spread. It spread like crazy. One of the years that I was in Scotland, I think it was the year after I was had done my first year at Columbia College Chicago, and I was trying to figure out how I can continue having a career and still teaching, I decided I was going to go back to Seattle. And so I was on the phone with the licensing board in, in, in Washington, and they said, well, if you want to do, you could do a standalone master's degree. And I went, oh, what's involved in that? And they said, well, the first thing you'll need is you'll need a doctorate because you have to have a degree higher than the one you're giving out. So I went and spoke to the folks at Napier, and they said, well... Is this, this is Napier University, Edinburgh. Right, Napier University, Edinburgh, where I was teaching the summer programs in, in Scotland. They said, well, you know, we'll look into giving you a, an honorary doctorate. So I called back up the licensing board in Washington the next day, and they said, no, it has to be an earned doctorate. So I went back to Napier and met with Stephen Davis Moon, who at that point was working at, at Napier University. And he said, I'd love to take you on as a doctoral candidate, but I'm going to another school. He left and went to the University of Salford. And the following September, I started working on my doctoral thesis with the University of Salford. How long did that take to complete, Hummy? It's kind of a mush of a memory. It was either three or four years. I remember starting the thing. It was a doctor, doctor, a doctor of musical arts. First thing that was interesting is that when Stephen got to the University of Salford, he wrote me an email saying, listen, the university is celebrating its 10th year of giving a DMA awards, uh, DMA degrees. And so they're, I guess a contest would be the best way to, to say it, of, of candidates who, that they're going to give a scholarship to. So I submitted all my paperwork and all my scores. And the next thing I know is I got, I was very fortunate and I was given a full scholarship to do my doctorate at the University of Salford. Wonderful. And I remember Stephen telling me, oh, it'll be about, you know, 150 pages, you know, 20,000 words and a bunch of scores and stuff. And I said, okay, great. Well, four years later, 250, 100, 250 pages and 55,000 words later, <laughs> two, two, two hardbound volumes, uh, I finally finished my doctorate. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I did it. Absolutely. And, and what this means is, in terms of your own school, what, what's the ramifications of having that? Well, the funny thing about it is that once Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program joined Seattle Film Institute, it wasn't as crucial that I had the doctorate. I mean, I really should have had a degree higher than what I was giving out. I, when I was teaching at Columbia College, all I had was a bachelor's degree, two Emmy Awards, and lots of experience. But unfortunately, in the educational world, 
that doesn't hold a lot of water. You need to have an educational degree. So uh, there were moments, and I think that everybody who's ever gotten a doctorate will tell you this. There were moments where I just wanted to bang the whole thing and forget about it because it was just like, oh my, this is like so much work. But I, I persevered. I mean, there was a moment where I had to take like four or five months off and just back away from it because I was just, in fact, it was after I did the, the defense or the viva voce, as they call it, of my doctorate. I just felt the uh, examiners wanted me to, to to include some other elements in the in the doctorate, and I thought I was kind of finished with the thesis. And in fact, I had to go back and revisit some things, and I'm sure that they were correct in in their requests. Well, it's all over now. It's all over now. It's 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 finished. And if you go and search Hummingman thesis, you can actually go read the read my thesis. And it it like I said, it turned out to be 250 pages, two volumes four CDs. I mean, it's an immense amount of work. <laughs> now, your program now offers people full-time education in becoming right. film composers. Is that correct? Yes, we've, we now have, we, when, we, when we opened our doors, we started as a certificate. That never happened. It really became a, doctor, a, a master's degree almost immediately. And we offer a one-year, 10-month master's in music in film composition. We were the only one-year degree, master's degree in the United States for many years, uh, other schools are starting to catch on and realizing that it can be done in a year. Uh, primarily, uh, requirements for an MM degree can be one year, but an MFA, Master of Fine Arts, requires it to be two years, and most of the schools in the United States offer MFAs. And it's not like there's that many. I think there may be five schools that offer a master's degree in film composition. We've been really, really fortunate maybe it's the quality of the training maybe we just got lucky but our students are doing very well last year we had a student working on empire uh once upon a time and castle uh we've had students you know one of our students orchestrated on the new trolls movie so so it's not just a case you're giving people an education they are actually taking that education and being gamefully employed within the arena that they dreamt they would want to get into. Yeah, I, do, I you know, it's it's never going to be 100%. And some of them take their degrees and do different things. I mean, one of our students moved here from, took the, was from Utah, moved back to Utah. I forget where he's living now. But he's managed to get himself a number of commissions with the local symphony orchestra. And it's not a minor symphony either. It's like the Utah symphony. It's It's, you know... Certainly, it's not the Boston Symphony, obviously, but it's it's the major city symphony. It's not like the, you know, the community orchestra, you know, and some people have gone on to do arranging for different people. And so so the skill sets, our main focus is dramatic music. And but they take courses in writing songs for movies. They take courses in scoring video games. A lot of them have gotten work in the video game industry. A lot of them have done work in in direct to video uh, feature films. A couple of weeks ago, I spent two hours on the phone, one hour with with of two different students who are both negotiating their first feature film scores. You know, that's amazing. And, and that's the, the proof is in the pudding. It's not just some academic, academic course. It's actually, you're, you're getting people who are, are shining in the industry and, and that's the great testament surely to the program and to the work that you're doing. Yeah. I think that part of what, one of the things, secrets is that we're really kind of aiming towards the high end. And to that, to that end, our students get to do nine live musician recording sessions, everything from like three musicians and electronics like they might have on a TV show 
all the way up to a 52-piece orchestra. We They score student-made films that we get from all over the world. We've gotten school submissions from schools in the UK, from India, from China. We've attracted so much attention because one of the things that we do is we offer student filmmakers original scores at no cost. And it's not original scores with synthesizers. It's original scores done with live musicians. And some of our some of those films have gone on to play festivals and win awards. It's actually our students have formed relationships with these guys. And so they end up not only scoring their student films, they do their first professional jobs outside of it. The other thing that happened that was very big surprise to us is that there's a website called musicschoolcentral.com that rates music programs. So if you're an oboe major and you want to study oboe, what are the top 10 schools? And we were listed in the top 10 schools that offer master's degrees in film composition or educational programs in film composition. And we were listed number four in the world, yeah, which was absolutely incredible, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we were we were blown away. The students knew about it a year before we did. You know, they, they all said, oh, yeah, we heard about your music school central. I said, music school central. What's that? And I went in. And found out that the only other schools that beat us were NYU, USC, and Berkeley College of Music, all of which are major institutions. We're this small 75-person school up in, up in the top left corner of the United States. <laughs> Size isn't everything, as I've often been told. Now, um, just uh, I have heard it said, and you can, uh, you, if you don't want to comment, then that's fine, but I have heard through the grapevine that you're writing a book. Is that correct? I am writing a book. There is there is truth to that, and 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 uh, I, I want to make a public statement that Jed is the person I have to blame for this endeavor. Years ago, he suggested that I take all of this great knowledge and put it into a book. We started together, and uh, it's been a very long process. How many and pages I, I, are you up to now? It's about three hundred and fifty pages. Wow! And basically, basically, I think that one of the advantages of 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 having held off was the idea that I've actually, I use the chapters in the book when I'm teaching the master's students. And so I've been able to really kind of test all of the, the approaches in terms of how I'm teaching things. And it's been a really good experience. In fact, I was hoping to take, last summer I, I didn't run the two-week the two summer intensive because I was planning on finishing the book. And what ended up happening was that uh, my wife and I decided to move. And so we had a house to sell and pack up and move into a new house. This summer, I'm doing the two-week summer intensive. So if nothing else, next summer will be the summer that I will finish the book. Although, really, the, when I say finishing the book, I need to go through and, and make sure that I add elements to the chapters that do not require a live lecture. And right now, a lot of them are additional m materials to support what was a live lecture? Well, perhaps uh, you could maybe do uh, filmed lectures and give people codes that they can go and watch things online. But anyway, let's not get into there. I'm sure it'd be great if you finished that next year. I mean, I mean uh, there's thousands of people all over the world who would love to get your, their hands on uh, that book and just read the concepts that you can't read anywhere else. Just to finish this podcast interview with you, Let's, uh, I want to ask you just a few questions. Do you got any any uh, stories that you can, without getting us both into trouble, say that we're just in crazy, crazy world of, of Hollywood? Crazy, crazy world of Hollywood. Probably the, the, the one of the more crazy stories that I have to tell is um, I worked on another film 
with James Dean Howard, where where I was hired by the lead orchestrator, a very good friend of mine named Brad Dechter. And Brad was doing all of the orchestration on a movie called Prince of Tides. And one night I'm driving home from dinner. I'd taken my family out to dinner. And Brad calls me and says, uh, Hummy, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm driving home from dinner. He said, how quickly can you get over to 20th Century Fox, one of the big studios? And I said, I could probably be there in about 20 minutes. Why? He said, well, there was an arrangement that was done of a song that Barbara Streisand is supposed to be singing. She's the director of the film. She was going to sing the song. She doesn't like the arrangement. I have to rewrite the arrangement. I need some help. So I took my family home, ran over to 20th Century Fox, and Brad Dechter and I are sitting in a back room with a hundred-piece orchestra sitting waiting for us. And we're sharing a keyboard that we took from one of the keyboard players. He's writing string parts, passing me pages of score, and I'm writing the woodwinds and the brass parts and percussion parts. And then I'm handing the pages off to the copyist, page by page. A hundred-piece orchestra at twenty, you know, thousands of dollars an hour is sitting there waiting, twiddling their thumbs while we're doing this. And we had to rewrite the arrangement that was written for this song. Barbara Streisand at one point comes in, puts her hands on my shoulders, leans over and says, how do you guys do this so fast? You know, and we're like, <laughs> we're sweat pouring off you. We're sweat pouring off us, exactly, because here we are, we're about to write an arrangement for, in my opinion, one of the greatest singers of all time. We write the arrangement, they play it down, Barbara loves it, she goes without warming up or anything, goes into the, a, an ISO chamber and starts singing the song and the hair is standing up on the back of my neck. It was such an amazing moment, having to work under incredible pressure and being able to pull something off that met Barbara's standards was and great. And that's why she's a superstar. Yeah, well, she is in my book. So, do you have any other Hollywood stories you could share with us? Well... I have to tell you one of the things that happened to me that I'm particularly proud of, and that is the fact that everybody in this industry, there are, there are people who are your idols. And one of my idols was, was Jerry Goldsmith, who, who you know, was not only a fabulous talent, but I grew to, to know him a fair bit. You know, we, I can't say we were ever friends, but certainly colleagues, which is not something that I would have ever said, because to me, he was kind of a god. There's a great story that happened, which is that after I scored Robin Hood Men in Tights, Jerry and I at that point shared the same agent. And one day I get a phone call from my agent, who at the time was Richard Kraft. And Richard says to me, you know, I mean, I meant to tell you the first time Jerry said this, but he mentioned it again today at lunch. And I said, well, what? He said, well, he was really impressed with your work on Robin Hood Men in Tights. And of course, I was like taken aback that Jerry Goldsmith had even noticed me. Richard said, well, you should call him. And I went, okay, you know, I'll call him. And so I get, he gives me Jerry's number and I call Jerry and I get his assistant on the phone, Lois. She says that Jerry, you know, went into the house. Jerry went into the house and he'll be back in a second. So of course I'm making small talk with Lois, talk about the weather and stuff like that. And it seemed to be an hour, although I'm sure it was more like five minutes because I was so nervous about the idea that I was actually going to have a conversation with Jerry Goldsmith. I'm about to hang up. I said, well, you know, listen, Lois, I was just calling to, to tell Jerry that, you know, I really appreciated his kind words about my score to Robin Hood Men in Tights. And Lois goes, his kind words? Jerry never says a nice thing about another composer. That's very unusual. And I'm going, oh, my God, this is getting weirder. Jerry comes in. So I'm about to, about to get off the phone. And she says, oh, here comes Jerry. Jerry comes in, grabs the phone, and literally spends, it must have been an hour with me on the phone, 
because I had just been signed to do this 10 picture deal for Showtime where I got to work with all these great directors. And Jerry had worked with all of these directors and he, or a lot of them. And so he was telling me, he said, okay, well, so-and-so likes this and so-and-so likes that and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like talking to a peer and I was like, so blown away. That's how we started our, our relationship. A couple of months later, or maybe a year later, I get a phone call from Jerry that he was working on a film. He had just been hired to replace another score and was really tired and was about to go work on this other film, which will be nameless. What he wanted to do is he wanted to write the themes and wanted me to do the score based on his themes. And it would say music by Hummy Man, so, uh, themes and conducted by Jerry Goldsmith, music by Hummy Man. Wow. And I went, Oh, absolutely. You know, that, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a no, uh, you know. yeah, absolutely. No question. He says, okay, well, listen, I'm doing the last recording session of this other film that I just finished working on. Why don't you come down to the session? Let's go have lunch and we'll talk about some details. So I go down to the session. I attend the session, this last session of this other film he's working on. We have lunch and we talk about the details. And, uh, and that's when he explains to me the credits and how he's going to work and all this. And I'm going great. Later that day, I get a phone call from Richard Kraft. And he says, well, how many have got some bad news? Okay, what's the bad news? The bad news is that the producers are not willing to give you credit on the movie. And I went, well, that's kind of a drag because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing the score. Jerry made it very clear what he wanted the credits to be. He said, yeah, well, the producers feel that they only want Jerry's name on the poster and they only want Jerry's name in the credits of the movie. And I said, okay, well, you know, that's a drag, but I still get to work with Jerry. So, you know, let's go with that. The next thing I know is I get a call from Jerry and he says to me, honey, I'm walking off the film. If they're not going to give you credits, I'm telling them I'm walking off the film, which blew me away. You could think of that as like, wow, he, he's really supporting me or he's being, you know, you could cynically look at it another way. But I took it as like, man, this is amazing. Jerry's going to turn down a gig because of me. That's incredible. Anyway, ultimately, he walked off the film. They, they refused to give me the credit. I didn't get the opportunity. But why, why, why would they do that? I mean, why would they refuse just to, to give you the credit? Because producers want, you know, they, they like having stars names on the posters. You know, if they gave me the credit, they would have had to give me credit on the poster. That would, they would have said Jerry's name and my, my name, and they didn't want to do that. They kind of felt that, that me being involved in the project was probably, you know, diluting the power of Jerry's name since he. So that's the first time that happens. The next time it happens, he calls me up. And he said, Hummy, okay, I've already cleared it with the studio. I'm working on a film. I haven't gotten the final reel, but I know the final reel is going to be really busy, a big, huge action sequence. So I'm going to need your help because we score in a week. So when the reel comes in, we're gonna, you're going to get not credit in the front of the movie, but you'll get additional music by credit at the end of the film. And I'm going, okay, no problem. That's fine. So we end up, and I clear my schedule. Everything's set. The studio's agreed. Everybody's agreed. The final film, the final reel comes in, which is usually about 10 or 11 minutes long. And now instead of there being 11 minutes of music, there's only three minutes of music. So Jerry calls me up and says, honey, I only have three minutes to write. I can do that myself. So the second time it falls apart. The third time he called me, he called me to work on the main title for the Voyager TV series, which we've already talked about. And at that point, I had basically stopped orchestrating, but I couldn't turn Jerry down because, you know, he'd been so kind to me on these other two opportunities. So I ended up orchestrating not only the main title for the series, but what are called bumpers, which are the little pieces they play during, in between commercials, you know, saying Voyager will be right back. And then I also 
wrote the arrangement that he d- conducted live. And um, that, that happened later. After the session, uh, Jerry and I went out to lunch. He thanked me for putting the basses in, but he said he really wanted the timpani solo. And at which point he asked me to become his orchestrator. And I would have orchestrated his last five or six movies. But at the time, nobody knew that, Ill- that Jerry was ill. And I don't even think he knew. I was really trying to break the mold of being an orchestrator anymore. And so I turned him down. Do you regret that decision? You know, regret would be a hard thing. I mean, he understood why I did it. I mean, he understood that, that you know, Hollywood likes to pigeonhole people. And, and I already had worked so hard at establishing myself as a composer with Robin Hood Men in Tights and Dracula Den of Loving It and Year of the Comet, that he understood that it would, would have been probably not the best thing for me. And he thanked me very much. He said, you know, I'm... I'm he, he needed a new orchestrator and he would have loved working with me and I would have loved working with him, but I couldn't take it on. And it's an unfortunate thing. I, I would have been great to work with him for, you know, one of one of my all time favorite film scores he did after that basic instinct. But it just wasn't to be. And was that the last time you saw Jerry? It was the last time I saw him, but we talked on the phone, not all the time, but like once a year. I call him up and we would check in with each other. And he was very personable and, you know, always very supportive of my career. It, it's just an amazing story because there were moments in, in my career, as I think in everybody who's a creative person's career, where you just go, man, this is hard. Uh, there's got to be some easier way to make a living. You know, we all go through that. And every time that I, that I felt that way, and still to this day, every time I feel that way, I remember that Jerry Goldsmith believed in me. And, you know, when somebody of that high level and such a legend, who, by the way, just this week got his walk on the got his star on the hollywood walk of fame just two days ago when somebody like that tells you that you've got it and not only that he he told other people i mean he was actually recommending me to other composers to other directors i mean he recommended me to joe dante and jonathan kaplan who i ended up working with numerous times and saying extremely nice things about me and Hummy, what projects do you have on at this time I'm currently involved in two projects. I'm going to be scoring documentary feature about the history of the automat, which is a really interesting thing. You may not be familiar with this, but there was a time in downtown New York, as far as I know, there were, there were three of them. They were run by a company called Horn and Hardart. There were these restaurants where you would walk in. And it was kind of before vending machines became popular. And you'd walk up to the wall and there'd be these little boxes and you put a quarter in the box, turn a, cor- turn a knob, the door would open, and you would take the dish out that you had looked at through a window. And then the kitchen from behind the other side of the wall would put another dish of food in there. And these were called automats. They were very popular. In fact, what I learned from watching parts of the documentary is that big stars of the time rent the automats, close them down, and hold private parties like people like Jack Benny. And he would hold a private party and he'd give out quarters to all of his friends and they could get whatever food they wanted from them. From the- <laughs> Interestingly enough is that the filmmaker um, interviewed a bunch of celebrities. One of the celebrities was Mel Brooks. And Mel has written a song for the end of the movie, which I'm arranging. So has wow. teamed, <laughs> talk about a small world, has teamed me and Mel back up again. And uh, so that's one project I'm working on. The other project I'm working on, which I'm very excited about as well, is I've been a long-term project. I've been hired to write the songs and the score for an animated feature called Vincent the Artist, which is the story of a um, of a rat who runs away from home because he wants to become an artist where his parents 
sorry, where his father wants him to become a teacher and, you know, do a regular job, which I can relate to. <laughs> and uh, I'm working with my uh, songwriting partner, Sue Ennis, and we are in the process of writing 12 songs for the movie. This is a very long-term project. We have to finish the songs. There'll be an- another rewrite of the script. And then they have to, you know, they, they're going to cast it. And it's it's in process. When do you think that'll hit the screen, Sammy? That's probably at least two years away. Wow. You're right. It is long term. Yeah, and animated projects take forever because you have to do the writing. You have to record the voices. You have to do the animation. You have to tweak the animation. Then it comes back to me and then I have to score it. So it's it's a very long process. It's a very exciting project that's gotten director producers have, have taken it to the film market. They've taken it to con and they get a lot of excitement about the project, but it's, you know, it just takes forever to get these things going. You know, it's what we call development hell. You know, it just takes a while to get all the, all the pieces, all the financing, all the actors, all the bits put together. Well, I'm sure it's going to be well worth waiting for. So, Hami, just thank you very much for all your time in talking to GMI. I've learned lots and the stories have been great and it's just uh, fantastic to hear firsthand from someone who's worked at the highest level and continues to work at the highest echelon of the industry, how, how they got there and how they stayed there. Thanks so much for speaking to GMI. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the Hummy Man interviews, then make sure that you subscribe and come back because we've got plenty of fantastic visitors and episodes coming up on the GMI podcast. You haven't subscribed on any of the services that you found us on, please consider doing so. So that all that's left to say is thanks for listening and I look forward to having your company on the next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>